This morning, uh, we're talking about uh, ministry matters, and I'm just going to talk about a portion of, of this text. So just the first uh, three verses, really. And I'm not going to talk very long as well, because you're, you're going to hear from Ibrahim in a minute. So you get a nice short sermon today. I'll try to keep to my promise that I just made. There's an internal logic to this text, to these first couple of verses. There's, at first, there's a goal that this text is driving toward, and it's really this verse 13, that all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. That's really a goal. It's a big goal, but there it is. Unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, maturity to the measure of the full stature of Christ. So Christian maturity is the goal. How will this happen? How do we achieve this goal? Well, we get this at the end of verse 12. The way this will happen is that the body of Christ, or the church, will be built up. And I think this building up or, or growth is in at least two senses of the word. The first one is, is sort of in the sense of health, that it builds up and into, into something healthy. Um, and that may happen through encouragement or strengthening, things like that, those kinds of words. The second one is built up in terms of a number of people, more people. And I think we sometimes get uncomfortable with that. But we've got to think about uh, churches that are starting from nothing. In particular, in the New Testament context, in Ephesians, they all knew of a time when the church, the big church, didn't even exist. Growth meant, and building up meant, there once was not a church there, and now there is one. It meant adding more people. And I think this is... Uh, been avoided a lot by the mainline church in the West, uh, especially in the last few work, uh, years. And I think the reason is, is that the church has been in decline, and so it kind of makes us feel bad about ourselves to talk about numbers, because there are less people in the church in Europe and North America. And it kind of terrifies the church to reflect on this. And so we'll say things like, well, numbers aren't really that important. But it, just a quick reading of, say, the book of Acts shows us that the number of people coming to believe was celebrated. And while really a, a total number of how many people are in an individual congregation, uh, that, that number isn't really, isn't really important in and of itself. But when you start to think about what those numbers represent, every number is a person. And why wouldn't we want another person to know and experience the love of God in Jesus Christ. So of course we'd like more people, but not for the sake of there being a bigger church, but for the sake of those people who those numbers represent. Here the, the building up of the body being about the number of people added is also about inclusion. Right? Saying that growth in numbers is important is actually saying that it's not just about us. That the building up is not just about insiders, it's also about 
outsiders, or another way of saying it is that there actually are no true outsiders. Everybody can be an insider. As people are added into the church, the church is built up in number, but there's also a double blessing that goes on when this happens. The person being added is blessed as part of the church. They get encouraged. Their, their faith can be renewed, or they can start to hear more about Jesus. Um, so they're blessed. But the church is also blessed by the addition of the new person. And not just because, oh, now we've got you know, 71 people instead of 70 people. No, it's not about that at all. We get blessed because we experience meeting that other person. And they bring something else into the church that we may not have experienced before. We get to learn from them and be blessed by them. It's so great when there's somebody new. So the goal is this unity or the knowledge of Jesus or maturity. The method is the growth of the body, uh, health and by number. But how does this happen? Well, in the first uh, part of verse 12, we find out that the way this happens is that the saints do ministry. And the growth is the result, or the, the, the building up is the result. The saints do ministry. And saints, uh, we, we ought not to be afraid of that word. Saints here just means everyone in the church, all believers, all Christians. Everyone does ministry, and when everyone does ministry, that builds the church. When the church is built, that leads to everyone being mature in Christ. Now, this is kind of trickier territory to talk about everybody doing ministry, because what exactly is that? What does someone doing ministry look like? Uh, and is everybody in the body of Christ capable of doing ministry? Or do we feel like we can do it? And the passage begins with the clear statement that God has gifted the church with certain people in certain roles to help the body do ministry. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These are the equippers. They equip the rest of the body so that everyone can do ministry. That's the internal logic of this text, right? God has given some to do an equipping kind of ministry. They equip everyone else to do the real ministry. Okay? The equipping ministry actually isn't the real ministry. The real ministry is what the saints do. So some are, equipped, are given to do the equipping ministry. They equip everyone else to do the real ministry. When everyone does that, the church is built up. It grows in every sense of the word of growth, moving toward the goal of all of us coming to unity and to the knowledge of the Son to maturity. That's the internal logic of the text. Somewhere along the way, though, this seems to have gotten broken, particularly in the West. The global church is growing, actually, by leaps and bounds, but in North America and Europe, it's not. Alan Hirsch is an Australian missiologist, and he's written about this uh, breakdown of the system in several books. The, the notable ones are uh, The Forgotten Ways is one of them, and The Permanent <laughs> Revolution is another. And he contends that in the West, what we did was we professionalized the equipping offices by making clergy. And that really isn't a bad thing in and of itself. But in doing that professionalization, what we did was we ignored three out of the five giftings to the church. We ignored the apostle, the prophet, and the evangelist. 
and basically professionalize the pastor and the teacher and, and squish them into one as well, by the way. And many have even argued that the age of apostles and prophets and to a lesser extent evangelists is essentially over. Like that was a New Testament thing. They needed that then. And once things got established, we don't really need that anymore. We can just have pastors and teachers. Some have argued that. And our ignorance of apostle, prophet, and evangelist extends so far that we now have a kind of fear about even those words. They drum up major negative associations. So what Hirsch does in his books is he tries to reclaim and reframe these gifts to the church and believes that the key to the church becoming what it was truly meant to be is having all five equipping roles operating together. And in some ways, it's kind of not rocket science. Like, it's here in Ephesians 4 that Jesus gives the church these five roles. We've ignored three. So why do we think things are broken? Now, part of his argument is that the first three equippers, what they do is they focus the church on action, while the other two do not necessarily focus. They can, but they don't necessarily <coughs> focus the church on action. See, because someone can passively receive teaching, like we all are right now, right? And sit there passively receive it. And people can passively receive pastoral care from the pastor and never be motivated to do any ministry. The teaching and the pastoral roles are primarily nurturing, feeding roles. They build the church in the sense of caring for the people. But only certain kinds of teaching and certain kinds of pastoring will move people beyond receiving and into active ministry or service. So Hirsch sees the apostle as an organizer, the one who establishes new churches, the one who sees a strategic bigger picture where the church uh, as a whole needs to move into new places where people maybe don't know the gospel or where there are certain needs. The apostle moves the church into action to be the church in places where there needs to be a church. He sees evangelists as more than people who simply tell the good news. He, he says that's actually part of regular everyone's ministry, to tell the good news. But according to Hirsch, the evangelists in the equipping role are, are the big-time recruiters. They don't leave it at simply telling the good news. They are actually great at helping people enter into the body of Christ. They, they just do that in, uh, naturally. Prophets, according to Hirsch, are not predictors of the future. Rather, he sees them as people who shake up the status quo. They are the ones who point out where the church is being too insular, for instance. They move the church toward the heart of God. Prophets in the Old Testament sense were people who heard from God and then spoke God's word. So prophets move the church toward what God is concerned about. They move the church toward the neediest in society. They're concerned with God's justice. And they're very action-oriented. So Hirsch believes that these five roles need to be firing on all cylinders and working together. He also believes that anyone who has all five, of, uh, that everyone actually has all of these five roles built into them in varying degrees. Like each of those have these five roles kind of latently within us as believers. And that means that each of us will kind of lean toward one or two uh, more than all the others. doesn't mean that the whole church is going to be acting in these equipping roles. We're not all equippers. 
But it does kind of mean that we relate to God and God's mission through these varying lenses. So you would be brought to life or would serve in a ministry in one of these kinds of areas. And sometimes we're kind of serving in the wrong one. We feel the life is getting sucked out of us when we should actually be over here doing something else. And I kind of like Hearst's arguments. <coughs> the, the hard thing is, though, that I find them hard to grasp onto and hard to implement. Like, what are we going to do with any of this? It gives me a better perspective on where the church, particularly in the West, may be failing and why, but trying to implement what Hearst suggests, I think, is really difficult. But last year I read a book by Tim Keller. It's a book called Center Church. And in part of that book, he tackles the idea of an every member lay ministry. And that's what this passage from Ephesians, I think, is all about. You can make it just about the equipping ministries, as, as Hirsch does. And I think we've got to get that equipping right. Tim Keller would agree with that, but in his book, he also says that we just, we simply need to renew our vision for lay ministry. Which, lay ministry is just, that just means ministry done by everyone. Lay people is everyone, uh, clergy included. Lay people means the people of God. The ministry done by everyone. We just need a new vision for that. I, I shared part of this book with the elders at a retreat that we had in July. And uh, I've got, I'll use a bit of time and share a bit with you. Um, it's tiny print on my paper, so I'm going to have to look down. What does this every member gospel ministry look like in today's world? Keller writes. Here are some examples. Dan and Jill help their two sons, ages five and seven, with scripture memorization and teach them a simple catechism. They field the boys' questions and help them understand the meaning of the texts they are studying. Sally gets to know a young woman named Clara at church. Clara confides that she and her husband are having marriage problems and he isn't willing to go to a counselor. Sally and her husband Jeff invite Clara and Sam over for a meal. Sam hits it off with Jeff. Afterward, Clara convinces Sam to meet with Jeff and Sally to talk about their marriage. They meet together once a month for four months, and they look at Ephesians 5 and study other biblical texts on marriage. Ted is a young single lawyer. He knows several other lawyers who go to church with him, though they don't work for his firm. He decides to have a Super Bowl party for several of his non-Christian colleagues and invites two Christian lawyers from church and a couple of other believers as well. The men and women from his workplace hit it off with the lawyers from church. About three months later, one of them shows up in church with one of Ted's friends. Jessica meets Teresa, a new believer at church, and invites her to work through a series of six Bible studies for new Christians on issues such as prayer, Bible reading, the role of the church, understanding the gospel better, etc. Joe has a lifelong friend from college named Pete, who's a musician. Pete's performance anxiety is harming his career. Joe has been a sympathetic listener for some time, but finally he bluntly asks Pete to explore the Christian faith with him and says, I think maybe it's the only thing that will ever help you overcome your problem. Pete is taken aback, but after a while he expresses interest, mainly out of desperation. Joe warns him, if Christianity is going to be of any help, it will only be if you come to the belief that it is not just helpful, but also true. Pete doesn't want to go to any Christian gatherings, so they just start studying the Bible together and listening to sermons and lectures and discussing them. 
Keller goes on to write this. We can make several observations about these examples. First, it should be clear that we're not talking about evangelism in the traditional sense here. Some of these examples show instances of encouraging and building up new believers. Some point to ways of spurring Christians on to greater growth in Christ. Others depict situations of helping believers address particular problems in their lives. And yet the basic form of every member gospel ministry is the same. It's organic, it happens spontaneously, and it's outside of the church's organized programs. It's relational. It is done in the context of informal, personal relationships. It's word-deploying. It prayerfully brings the Bible and the gospel into connection with people's lives. It's active, not passive. Each person assumes personal responsibility for being a producer rather than a consumer of ministry. For example, uh, oh, I can use that example. There was a couple that I didn't use, so I won't give you the example. <laughs> So he goes on to talk about how sometimes we think of traditional evangelism as like these big tent revival meetings or something like that where a preacher is coming and brought in and people are brought to hear the gospel. And he's saying every member gospel ministry is different than that. It's often one-on-one, -on -one, relational, it's outside of the church. It's what you're doing with your friends and your families. That's what true lay ministry is. So I'll just read you one last snippet from from this section that he writes. Lay ministers counsel, encourage, instruct, disciple, and witness with both Christian and non-Christian individuals. They involve themselves in the lives of others so they might come to faith or grow in grace. Then a certain percentage of the people served by these lay ministers come into the lay ministry community as well, and the church grows in quality and quantity. Because they are being equipped and supported by the church's leaders, those involved in lay ministry tend to feel a healthy sense of ownership of the church. They think of it as our church, not their church, referring to the ordained leaders and staff. They freely and generously give up their time, talent, and treasure. Um, he talks in another part of the book that uh, often what we do is we get people involved in lay ministry, and he actually calls it lay leadership, which means that you're doing some sort of job in the church, and you end up doing that job but you're actually doing no lay ministry in your life in the world. So you've gotten really busy doing a bunch of church work. And that's not really what Keller would say is lay ministry. He'd say that's lay leadership. You've taken on a particular role. And those are needed, um, and at certain seasons and times in the church, sometimes you need a little more of that. I believe right now we're in, a, in this transition time and we've needed a lot of our people to kind of focus on, okay, we've got to move a bunch of stuff from one building to another. Like, but that's not really what we want to be focused on. We want to be focused on ministry in the world. That's what truly ministry is about. And so I'd like to just uh, challenge you to think this morning about these two different kinds of ministry that take place uh, in the church. The first is this equipping ministry. And the second one is every member ministry or lay ministry, or the, what I would say is the real ministry. And think to yourself, am I an equipper? Am I someone who is kind of in that category, apostle, prophet, evangelist, chef, uh, pastor, teacher, or, or am I kind of oriented towards, I want to help people within the church be able to do the real ministry in the world? Because some of us are, right? It's not just the professional clergy. Some of us really are those equippers who are meant to be kind of working on that. Or are you a minister? Are you a lay minister? 
Because for members of the body of Christ, for Christians, those are the two choices that Paul gives us in Ephesians. You're either one of these five that are equipping the church, or you are a saint doing ministry that builds the church. Those are the two options. So think, think this morning. Which one am I? Am I equipping, or am I out there doing ministry in the world and in my life?